Tonight's talk is with artist Abraham Cruz Viegas. It's presented as part of the Questrom Lecture Series. And we have invited Abraham tonight to give a bit of a sort of lecture presentation, maybe 20, 25 minutes. Then we'll have a conversation, and then we'll open it up to questions. So about Abraham and his work, he was born in Mexico City in 1968, where he continues to live and work. He studied pedagogy at UNA, UNAM in Mexico City, and his work has been the subject of solo exhibitions worldwide, most recently at Museo de Arte de Lima in Peru, the Tate Modern Carrera de Art uh, at the Contemporary in Nîmes, France, the Boymans Museum in Rotterdam, and the Kunsthaus in Zurich. His work has been featured in several exhibitions here at the Aspen Art Museum, including the Second Chances Show and The Revolution Will Not Be Gray. Sorry, I don't like the feedback. Uh, and we are talking about doing a larger solo project here. So for work, uh, for years, uh, yes, right? So for years, his work has explored the notion of auto-construction or the improvisations with materials that create precarious and mutable forms and experiences that are intrinsic components of human life today. Without further ado, Abraham. Hello. Hello. Well, thank you, uh, Heidi. Thank you, everybody, for joining us today. Um, I will just uh, talk today about a um, series of projects I've been making recently. Properly is one project that I uh, made in three cities, in Paris, in Tokyo, and Rotterdam. And it's called the Water Trilogy. This is uh, the first uh, stage of this project that happened in a Chantal Cruzel Gallery in Paris. And it's a, um, a very simple presentation of sculptural work made inside. Um, I used uh, uh, an object that was kind of the main thing in the exhibition. It's a canoe, a canoe from Pazcuaro. Pazcuaro, it's a lake in the west of Mexico in an area of indigenous people my, where my father belonged to, the Purépecha people, who are Indians. They have their own language and their traditions and so. This lake has been uh, a traditional place for fishing uh, an indigenous fish, a white fish that uh, it's already disappeared, it's, it's gone because of pollution and deforestation and many other problems in the area, but not only there, but in the whole country, as in the whole world. Then uh, because of uh, all these reasons as well, the water levels uh, went very low. And I wanted to find out how much water has been missing since I was born. I mean, assuming myself, I am the part of the problem. I am the problem as a human, destroying nature and destroying myself. So the height of the canoe hanging from the ceiling is exactly the height 
of the missing water in the lake, which is more or less my height. It's around uh, 160 centimeters. That's a lot for a lake of kilometers of extension. So this is the, the that's why I'm saying this is the, ma the main part of the exhibition. This is uh, also an important object for me as it's carved in a single piece of wood as it was traditionally made for many canoes all around the world, all around the world for different cultures and peoples. Like uh, traditionally people, they ritually carve and they collect a piece of wood from the forest in order to produce a canoe. So for fishing, the fish that now it's extinguished. So it's about the disappearance of not only water, but also the environment, the culture, the symbolical values, the tradition, and the language properly. So this is, this is uh, the main, I mean, it's a general overview of the exhibition with the canoe at the heart of the space. I also constructed some different sculptural uh, uh, elements, recycling material from other places in France and constructing kind of stages where people could stand and more than people in this case where it was uh, specifically musicians playing a song, a song that I wrote. I wrote the lyrics, not the music. So it was recycling properly, it would be the word, recycling a traditional tune of Huasteco music from the upper east of uh, part of Mexico with new lyrics written by me. And these lyrics talk about what I've said already, the, the missing water and the, all these problems that came along with the missing water. These are original uh, fishing nets from the lake, the same lake, used as sculptural objects uh, using a, a counterweight, which are local objects or products, products from, from France like a local beer, a local cheese, and a local sausage. These are drawings I made uh, reproducing the traditional representation of the fish from ceramics uh, on a enlarged images from postcards of the lake. So it's more than a nostalgic uh, reference to the lake or the culture. It's more like a, trying to understand the I would say like uh, how it's still something happening there that we need to look at. I mean, it's not a melancholy uh, art vision, but it's more about what could happen if we still have this now and we, how we can still save it. This is also a drawing representing a salamander that was indigenous from that lake. And it's like uh, the old Asholotl from Mexico City this is from the lake uh, Pátzcuaro, and it's called uh, Choque. It's a salamander that never grows up. It's, uh, it stays in a kind of a teenager stage, and it, uh, it's, it stays like that forever. And that's me, for, of course. <laughs> maybe, maybe you saw these, these drawings that are like two meters wide. Uh, they are hung with tools. From, a, from working, like a machete or a sickle. And then this also refers to the, this same uh, context. These are part of the stage that I use for the musicians. I invited my friends who 
perform the traditional Huasteco music and they dance also, producing music while they, while they dance to, to sing to my lyrics. Can we have this now? This is a, a video from one of the performances. As you can see, instead of pushing the strings with his fingers, he's using the tool, the sickle. And he is uh, trying to find microtonal notes in each of these uh, sounds, as it's the experiment of a Mexican composer from early 20th century, Julian Carrillo, who found at least 16 subtones in each note just by hand, as he's doing now. He was, Julian Carrillo was a composer from the north of Mexico, from San Luis Potosí, and he is kind of the, one of the most important pioneers of microtonal music almost a hundred years ago. And then I wanted to witness myself the experiment of Carrillo with my friends, the Huasteco musicians. So they start making the experiment with the sickle and the machetes, and then they start singing my lyrics. I would love to, to have the, the other instruments, these three instruments, violin, the quinta guapanguera, which is kind of a long, thick bass. Can we play it now? And, um, and the jarana.
they play in different bands, all traditional trios, but I just wanted the best of them. So the, these guys are authentically the best of this traditional music in Mexico, the Huasteco music. And the, 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 the music, uh, these, these tunes are from an old, old anonymous song. And we just, I mean me, I just changed the lyrics so to talk about the lake and the salamander, the fish, and me as a problem. So these guys are very, very disciplined musicians, uh, punks like me, but anyways, they are very into the music and the rescue of their values and their symbolic heritage. So this is uh, the second stage in Tokyo, and this is in uh, the Hermes uh, Foundation in a beautiful building by uh, Renzo Piano in Ginza district in Tokyo. And there I uh, took as a reference a local thing that is this building that was built in the early 70s, and it's um, part of a movement called the metabolism. And, um, they were trying to find the, the smallest space in which a person can inhabit uh, having everything, all services, including a TV set. And then uh, very soon they found that this uh, kind of uh, building was not so useful and it's, it's been kind of abandoned. And, and now it's, uh, some, some of the rooms are in uh, Airbnb and so, but they need lots of money for maintenance and so. But almost all building is covered with uh, uh, plants, wild plants inside. So I, I love the idea of nature taking its place back in man-made production. And then I, um, it's called the Nakagin building. And I made um, these uh, little sculptures that are uh, referring to the Nakagin building, but constructed with paper, recycled paper, and chopsticks from restaurants, recycling everything. And uh, then I wanted some plants growing on them as uh, plants grow inside the building. 
and having my friends again playing inside these sculptures as using them for uh, like uh, sound uh, speakers, like uh, loudspeakers. So we made them there inside in the, in the very space of the gallery at Hermes Foundation with uh, this material that was provided to me, uh, the chopsticks and the, and the paper as uh, referring also to the tradition and the knowledge of constructing with paper in Japan. Like all these uh, uh, shades and walls, they, they, they regulate light width in uh, houses and, and shrines and temples. And so it appeals to local knowledge and uh, all this information that is transferred uh, in families for centuries, like tattoos or, or uh, calligraphy. And then um, dealing with the space, which is a beautiful space, it was very hard because of uh, the glass is made of. It's only glass blocks, the building. So I, I, couldn't, I wasn't able to touch any of the walls. Then I, that's why I decided to do this. And then uh, trying to have a, an emblematic plant to grow in there as using the space a kind of a, kind of a greenhouse, uh, I asked a lot of people, hold on, sorry. Oh, no, I have to go back. About which plants could be emblematic of that. And I've been told a, a morning glory is a very traditional Japanese plant. And making some little research, not that deep, I found that it's a Mexican plant. And it's called Ololiuki in Aztec. And this Ololiuki is the old plant where a LSD was synthesized from. And so it's a hallucinogenic plant. And I, we, grow, we grew up there, the LSD original plant. In, in Castellano, in Spanish, it's called El Manto de la Virgen. And it grows in, in the sides of the roads as a little a purple bell flower that you may, of course, have seen. And then I made also this large painted paper that, uh, in which I used all uh, images I found in the papers, in the newspaper mostly, and magazines that was given to me for making the other work. And I painted it blue in different tones of blue as appealing to the microtonal thing again. And, uh, but also I used all the wraps and envelopes from uh, snacks we ate while producing the work there and drink, drinking beer. And I found a beautiful word in Japanese that refers only and exclu exclusively to these snacks you have when you drink beer. And it, the word is tsunami, not tsunami, but tsunami. So this, call, this, this piece is referring to tsunami and the convivial act of working together while drinking beer and thinking on disaster. Then we recorded the musicians performing with the sculptures inside there, and then we projected them on empty boxes from the Hermes store. So we made these uh, kind of bulky screens, and we screened the videos on them separately. Let's go. The same guys, but this is a different song with different lyrics.
so I made three different songs for each place that are about different things, but also I wanted to create uh, a voice, a subjective voice that was not mine. So in this case, is the salamander singing to the local fish cat that provokes tsunami. So he's singing to the fish saying, I'm a salamander, I'm so quiet, you're so crazy, you produce all these earthquakes, can you stop a bit? We are worse than human. And then it's, it goes like that, and then the third song, the the, in the last stage of this uh, trilogy that was presented in Rotterdam, you will see, is, uh, you can start now. It's uh, about a lady who cries because of her missing children that she can find. And then it's, of course, about the 43 students missing some years ago. And then her tears are so abundant, so, so it's a plethora of tears that she makes a, a lake that is former Mexico City Lake, Tenochtitlan Lake. So it's all these stories, and that one is sung by a water hose, you know, like uh, thinking on the water that could run inside the, the hose and so on. So it's more like a, I, I think on these lyrics as uh, animistic ones, in which things and animals think and have feelings and can tell about what they have to say to us in order to stop destruction. My friends' names are Cocol, Cuacharas, and Epollo. They're professional names, yeah. This is Cocol. So this is the paperwork I made there. And this is another sculpture I made with everything they gave me to make sculptures. And I decided to uh, choose nothing. So I used everything. And uh, this is called Tsunami Disaster, the sculpture that is there. And it's mostly from the stores and the displays, the material they discard from making the displays of the store. And these are new drawings there mixing the rep representation of the fish with the salamander together. And this is a table with information I make sometimes with books I use for the research for each project, but also books I read during the project, no matter they are related to it or not. So there are novels or music books or whatever. And this is the last one from Rotterdam that it happened just uh, early this year. 
And for that, I uh, wrote a new, a new song. And I asked my friends to, to talk, to, I mean, sorry, to play using these uh, domes, uh, loudspeakers, uh, and they are made with uh, canvases from, I mean, sail canva sailing canvases. So it's a local material from Rotterdam, recycling also uh, pipes. I mean, the structure is made with pipes. And I was uh, using the image or the representation uh, of a dome used uh, frequently by Buckminster Fuller, the American engineer, that was also used for a, the market, the popular market in my neighborhood where I grew up. And it's uh, called El Mercado de la Bola, which is a dome. And then it's where I spent some years of my childhood. And then it was referring also to my childhood, but not in a biographical way. So it's a tool for singing. And there, again, the books and the references. And we had the, the, the domes and the videos from the performances with the musicians. Thank you. These are separate audio channels, so it would sound strange, but maybe you can go a bit forward. I think we can uh, stop with this now, and then uh, we go to, the, uh, also we have always the, the lyrics written on the wall of the exhibition, so people can read what they are singing in the videos. And in this case, it's in Spanish, in English, and in Dutch. There we, we had uh, the real salamander, that I found in a, uh, in a hardware store in Rotterdam. But I found it, the Mexican salamander in Tokyo and in Seoul and in London. I bought one online. And in Mexico, it's forbidden to have one at home. It's banned because it's endangered. And the, the interesting thing of this salamander is that it, it grows limbs, again, if you cut one of, I mean, leg or one hand, they can grow again one. So in medical research, it's very important because of cancer, understanding of regeneration of cells. But it's, of course, also uh, important because of the cultural value. The importance of this animal for pre-Hispanic cultures is crucial. There is a model of my market. This is my market when it was being constructed in my neighborhood. And this is Fuller's domes. And this is also, I, mean, I will tell you now briefly why this, this uh, water trilogy happened. 
when, when my family arrived to that neighborhood, uh, there was nothing but rocks. People constructed their houses as they could with whatever material they found. It was like that. They built their houses with uh, recycling material. And then uh, uh, it was more about like a, a survival thing. And they got together as a community to protect their little houses and to have services like uh, water, electricity, a market, schools, and so on. And recently, this is from 1969 or 1970. I was born in 1968. Recently, my mother called me and said, you know, there is something happening that they were building a, a huge building and uh, they found water while excavating. And instead of telling to the authorities, the constructor just, uh, add, they poured concrete on the source of water in an area that it's always very, it's been very scarce. And we, we lacked of water for a long time. So the ladies organized themselves to protect the site and they stopped the construction and they, this is the, the site, the construction site. And they asked the authorities to expropriate the, the land to construct an ecological park. And the, the, the authorities' answer was evicting the, the ladies with the police. And so it's a struggle now, still now. And because of course it's, it's private property. But the ladies were asking for the water that is everybody's property. And then it's, it, was, it became a legal conflict, as it's still now. And then when thinking on this, I thought on my mother, who was one of these activists when I was a child, asking for the services, asking for water, electricity, and so on. And then it took me to, to think again on who I am and where I came from, and about nature, of course, but in a very, very familiar environment that is my neighborhood. This is the police evicting the ladies and so on. Some two years ago. They were throwing away around 300,000 liters of water per minute. And uh, so it was, it was kind of a very contradictive, con, 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 how do you say? It was a contradiction, yeah. And so I took a long way to research on my, my background, my culture, my language, my work as an artist, but not in a propagandistic way, not as a pamphlet, producing these sets of, of sculptures, taking all my references, including my experience, but not going self-autobiographical or self-referential. And this is the, yeah, well, the houses as they were, and so on. Anyways, so that's a very, very beginning and the trigger for the Water Trilogy. And now, of course, it evolved into new projects and new things that I'm working yet with uh, academics at the university discussing water, discussing the salamander, discussing the lakes, discussing music, discussing, uh, yeah, the symbolic value of all these uh, elements that are now in my work. And that's it. Thank you very much. Okay, great. Thanks. Take this. Okay. 
So when you talked about the Japanese word for um, drinking beer with friends, I was thinking about you. Each time you played the video, you took some of your beer, and Oscar, your friend, is here, and he's drinking a beer too. And so I like the idea of uh, conversations um, amongst friends while drinking beer, but not in, not in fear or conflict. So. <laughs> but I was interested in the... Um, in the archaeological aspect of, of your practice and the idea of kind of mining your own history and your own community and your, the story of your mother and, and her um, activism. And, you know, was hoping you could talk a little bit about that. Well, I, I think I'm an artist and I like, I like making research and I like uh, uh, to make questions. But it's, I, I, know, I don't feel like an archaeologist or like an a historian, I mean, uh, for me, it's a totally different thing, and uh, I don't want to produce truth. Instead, I want to produce questions, mm -hmm. and my questions are who I am, and that's a question I share with you, where, with anybody, and I think it, that's, for me, I mean, I'm not, I cannot speak uh, for all the artists, but I think it's always an important question, like, a, saying in public who I am and not understanding and not, not arriving to any answer. And I cannot communicate anything but my questions and my doubts. And I think this is the way I, I, I feel, I feel a intrigued and uh, trying to understand. And then a, I think archaeologists and anthropologists and ethnographers and philosophers produce the same questions different ways. And, but I'm, I'm, uh, I'm an artist, and I think the way I produce these questions is giving them shape in space, and then they take a shape that is specific to my very link to a specific place. I mean, that's why I try to refer to the local, the local in, in Rotterdam, the local in Tokyo, the local here, the local anywhere I go, and then it's me making the question here, now in Aspen, and this produces new shapes, and that's what I think it's my art. And then this way, I also think it's when, like for instance, drinking beer with friends and having some snacks that are called tsumami, produces different, it triggers new questions. And this is what I think it's my real advantage of making all new works in different places, so I, I learn more. So this is an educational device for me, um, and I feel uh, I have to take advantage of this, as this privilege in society. Do you think truth is important in art? I, I don't know what's that. I think, uh, I mean, truth is what historians produce, and I, I feel always very skeptical about truth. And I mean, I'm not a religious person, I'm not, uh, uh, I mean, it depends, I don't know. I, I, I believe in, in friendship, and I believe in, in, in snacks. <laughs> and, and I mean, I, I, I really do believe in, in, in uh, how to be transparent. I mean, not to, uh, I, I like very much when people ask, in art or in front of an artwork, what's behind? Like trying to find out something that should be hidden. And I think art should be transparent. And I think it's, I like, I like uh, making the question as 
sincerely, I mean, not, not trying to hide myself uh, behind the art or behind my question, but really uh, saying, yeah, like uh, when you publish a book, you are making public your questions or your whatever. And then it's the same when you make an exhibition, you are exhibiting yourself. And it, this means for me no truth, but only questions. I mean, questions are true, but in their, uh, in their status of existing, they are true. That's the only thing I can say about this. So I like that you're talking about what you believe in. And um, that's one of the things that I'm really drawn to in art. And, um, and I asked you the question about truth because I think it's a, a question about where we can find it and whether it even exists and whether it exists as a commonality between more than just one person, right? And any kind of agreement in that. Um, but when you talked about what you believe in, I'm, I'm also curious about what, what you think art can do. Because so many people need, I think, so much from art. I think sometimes art is burdened by all the things that people need from it. Mm -hmm. And I wonder what you think about that. Well, I think um, it's a very hard question. But I think when, when, for instance, when I'm asked about being or not uh, an ecologist, I, I don't think I am. I'm not. I'm not an activist. I just make art that is, takes as prime matter some questions or problems related to self-destruction, again. And then this is it. I, 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 I think we need, we need to have some kind of will as artists, as, as citizens, as political entities and then we can construct properly good questions and, and then again we can share them and this is art for me and we can, I mean I think we all need answers and some proper statements that, that can lead our lives and, and behavior to something that we think it's good but I think it's very hard. I don't, I don't know what it is. I don't, I, don't, I don't really have an answer. I think I prefer to get nervous and and produce again more, more uh, situations in which I can share with friends. Like for instance, with my friends, the musicians, they they are they are really teaching me a lot about uh, a totally different environment of art making that is not as uh, arrogant and uh, selfish like uh, visual arts. And I I I. I find more interesting, more appealing, more seducing in terms of making questions, the way they work in conviviality, in, in enjoying and partying and in the middle of a catastrophe. They still produce some, something beautiful, an abstraction of these problems. Yeah. So are you comfortable with things being messy? I'm I'm super messy, so I, I I don't I don't know what what it's that exactly. I think I think we I mean I like saying that in order to create, sometimes we have to destroy, and destruction as a tool is important. I mean, this, like uh, educationally, when I when I think on my my values and how how I I think I arrived to be my to be myself meant destroying some of the values that my family gave me. 
So I have to emancipate from that situation. And now I hope my children, they, they will emancipate from me so to produce their own identities. So this mess that carries chaos and destruction is, is necessary sometimes. But I think it's, 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 it's impossible to have it as a permanent circumstance. It's, it's cycles and it's, it's periods of energy that flow different ways. And sometimes it's absolutely necessary to destroy myself. So I saw your recent show at Kermanzudo in New York, and I thought that uh, there's a real sense of humor in the work. And so I wonder if, 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 you, see, if you see some of your work as being funny. Well, um, I, uh, long time ago, when I started working as an artist, I was a cartoon artist in the mid-80s. I published my cartoons, and I, my, my biggest aspiration was to become a Goya or a, a I don't know, like the great old masters. And uh, I think all my work still since then a caricature. Mm. I mean, not, not the ways an exaggeration of things, like when you make a portrait of someone with a long, long nose. That's the old fashion, the old, old style caricature. I mean, more like a political one. And, and that way, I think I love that kind of humor, mm -hmm. the, the political cartoon humor, in which you have to address power in a destructive way, so to produce, to construct something new. This way, I like humor a lot, and I, I like you say that you saw humor in that. I, 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 I think it's necessary, and I think uh, as a society, we, we need humor, so to transform things. I mean, and some of the humor is almost like an absurdity, right? And so the more you look, then you see the way that things are combined to, to give you a new way of looking at things. So, and I think that, that ties very much to the idea of the kind of political cartoon. So showing you something you know, um, but in a way that you haven't thought of before. Yeah, well, I, I, I mean, I'm, I'm not, uh, when I say, when I refer to caricatures, I'm not trying to produce caricatures, but I, I, yeah. I wanted to refer to political cartoon and this, this kind of uh, platform on which uh, you can face authoritarianism, for instance, in a, like they say in French, tete a tete, mm -hmm. no fear, and humor is, is powerful mm -hmm. that way. So it's more than producing caricature, it's, mm -hmm. it's like facing human, human in mankind this way, tete a tete, mm -hmm. like the same, with the same dignity and the same level. That's important for me. Yeah. Just thinking about that idea of uh, the connection between fear and power and uh, what role art can play in that. Well, there is this film by a, a Rainer Werner Fassbinder that is all about that and how fear is the most powerful energy in the world. It's not love, it's not money, it's not sex, it's fear. And I think we have to fight fear, mostly. Mm -hmm. This is the most important thing. And I'm, of course, I'm a fearful person, mm -hmm. uh, but I try to fight my fears by producing these questions. First of all, who I am and why, what for? You know, is it worth to be myself and then have to, I, I mean, it's not that I 
I can do it, but I try to challenge my fears. Yeah. Yeah, I, uh, for the last 18 months or so, I've made it a personal practice to try and do one thing every day that I'm uh, totally afraid of. <laughs> so, yeah. it's hard. Totally, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> Um, I'd like to open it up to some questions from the audience, if people have them. Yes, Larry. Uh, obviously, a lot of your art is very personal, but you conflate it with different places and blend in. So I have a small question and a big question. The small question is, when you had the musicians in Tokyo playing, they were playing barefoot. Was that in deference to the uh, Japanese culture or where they came from? Second question is, congratulations, you turned 50 this year. So I want to know how time and place conflates into your practice. Hmm. I hope I, can, I got the questions properly. But I think uh, first, my friends, the musicians, they, they are so used to perform with any kind of audience. For instance, they go every six months to festivals for dancing. It's traditional dancing contests. So they go anonymous, nobody see them. And then they perform the best as they can. And then there is a, a stage with dancers from different regions. And there is a champion, a couple champion. And nobody notice about the musicians. And they love that because they go behind the lights and when they are in front of the lights, they are the happiest ever. And um, in this case, they, they perform for the camera for only one song. And then for the opening, they play their traditional program, let's say. So it's like a one hour and a half of traditional old songs. And they, they, they love being listened to and to have an audience like, uh, and mostly uh, people that don't understand what they are saying. And then as they are used to improvise all the time, I mean, these traditional songs have no permanent lyrics. They change them all the time. So they challenge each other by improvising at the very moment, making fun of each other. And they, they, it's a tradition, it's part of that. And then they enjoy a lot like, uh, having people that don't understand nothing about what they are saying. And they make some jokes about Japanese, but the way of, uh, I came here, now I, 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 I will eat some sushi, and that, whatever. And then they, the other one answers, nobody notices. And they like that kind of, uh, in front of an audience, having such a private space. Mm -hmm. It's kind of the same, but different. And so I don't, I don't feel they, they, they fear strangers or go traveling to another country. I think they, they just do their, their job as normal. And second thing was what, sorry? You turned 50. Oh, well, uh, like being, that I was born in 68? Well, it's, a, it's an important thing for me. I, I, uh, I wrote after this uh, trilogy, three new songs about 1968. And these songs are mostly about the massacre of students in Mexico City. That is, of course, a political thing. And it's something that the government, Mexican government, never accepted that happened. And so, I mean, it happened. Everybody knows. There, is, there are many, many...
people that was there, that they were there and nobody can deny it. But the government, it's not in official history. That's what I'm trying to say. And it's 50 years now, this year, in October the 2nd, that it happened. And of course, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to have some visibility on that, as, along with many other people. There is a big commemoration at the National University. They have a program of uh, activities. And we are trying to do something on ours, I mean, on my side, with uh, my gallery and with other people, friends, so to make it wider. Because, of course, it's, not, it's something that not happened, it didn't hap happen only in Mexico, but in Paris, in Prague, in different countries, in Berkeley. So it's a, it's a human moment of transformation. So I'm very, very much into that, and I'm proud of my year. Other questions? Yeah, Sylvia. Could you tell us about the lyrics and the songs that you're writing, and what do you want to do with them? Um, do you want them to become music? Do you want somebody else to use them? What are your plans? Well, I, I started writing lyrics. I, I know nothing about music. I love music, but I, I cannot play any instrument. I have no discipline for learning music but for beer. And then, <laughs> and um, so I, it was in 2008, during a residency at the uh, Center for Contemporary Art in Glasgow, in Scotland, that I knew, I understood, everybody there plays in a band. And the curator, the, the guy who cleans the building, they get together in the band. And there is no class, I mean, no social classes. They go together in a band and they are along and they enjoy each other. So when I knew about that and I was writing a book about my neighborhood, um, I, I wrote little pieces of poetry that became songs and I gave them, it's 18 lyrics that I gave to 18 bands in Glasgow and we produced an album with the, with the songs, with the recorded songs and there is uh, one that is played by a traditional Scottish choir and there is another by a punk band. There is another, there is two ladies with ukeleles. Uh, so it's 18 different songs. Then I made another album in Lima some four years ago with 12 new songs and so on. So I have now around 50 songs recorded. And uh, I keep writing new lyrics and I try to find friends who are musicians who can appropriate my lyrics and perform them in different places. So I have. I have, um, yeah, like a triple or, I don't know, like to make many vinyls. And we need, yeah, like a producer now. <laughs> Does that answer? Yes, but you're No, I originally, the, those in, in, written in, in Scotland, I wrote them in, in English, in my poor English. And a poet friend uh, read, read them, so to check I was not saying any nonsense. And, and anyways, we kept them like that. And then I wrote some in Spanish and some in French. But mostly, I know it's kind of half-half, Spanish-English, yeah. Yeah. Do you have a question?
I have, I have some uh, exhibitions. I have now an exhi a big exhibition at the National University in Mexico, at the Museo de Universitario de Ciencias y Arte. And it's uh, all about science and art, and it's all about uh, conservation, I mean, uh, ambientalism. So I work with three different academics. One is a historian, another one is a biologist, another one is a, a genetist. And then we are working in a big project involving more than 50 artists and uh, events every day, like uh, talks, workshops, uh, book launches, and many things from May to August. And then I have a show in, uh, in Austin in January, then another in February in Mexico, then in Chicago another one in September next year. And I have some group projects also and books, but yeah. And I'm teaching in Paris now, I will start soon. So, yeah. Yeah, yes, I, uh, I'm, we are moving with my family to Paris and then I will start teaching in September. Yeah, thank Great. you. Anyone else? So then I'll just end by saying, um, It's interesting for me, the complexity of, of your practice um, and uh, the utility of using things that, that, um, that you're given in ways that are unexpected. And I think that is um, a great metaphor for life too, where we use what we're given however we need to, to make known what, what I, whatever we wanna share. So thank you for sharing your practice with us today. Yeah, thank you, I'm, I am very grateful, thank you.